Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is behind the scenes where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. Cannons dot battlefields across the United States where their presence suggests the violence of combat. But their solid heft is also evidence of the hands of the men who made them. Founders, blacksmiths, wheelwrights, gunsmiths, and brickmakers are only a few of the tradesmen who collaborated to produce a weapon familiar to every regiment. Director of Historic Trades, Jay Gaynor, and Master Blacksmith, Ken Schwartz, are here now to talk about their efforts to recreate an 18th century cannon. This whole project is possible because of the generosity of the Fredrickson Foundation. They've given us the funds that we've needed both to uh, get the materials for the project, do some of the research for the project, and also document it. So we're very grateful to them for that. Who needs to do what when to make this a, a usable cannon? Well, obviously you have to have the barrel made. Mm -hmm. um, the founders have a good start on that. They're um, using 18th century descriptions and illustrations from the time period that show the process of creating a model of the original cannon, then using that model to create a mold for what we're going to produce, then taking out the model and putting the mold next to the furnace. The furnace will be used to liquefy the bronze, which will then be poured into the mold, and then the mold being a, a clay, uh, a baked clay mold, that will just be broken up afterwards, leaving the shape of the cannon. Uh, then there will be finishing work that's uh, entailed cutting off excess material, turning the barrel on a lathe in order to finish the outside and polish the outside, boring out the, uh, the hole, uh, the bore of the gun. Um, so that's one process. The other process involves primarily the wheelwrights and the blacksmiths creating the wood components of the carriage and then the blacksmiths uh, reinforcing the wooden components with iron bands. Uh, you just said boring out the barrel. Now, uh, I know from having watched when you're going to make a round candlestick, you pour two halves right. and it's empty in the middle, and then you join them together, finish it off, and there's the candlestick with a hole in the middle. You don't have to bore anything. Right. Um, when, when you're producing a candlestick that way, um, economy of material use is very important, and that's why you cast the candlestick in two halves, because uh, it leaves the center part of the candlestick hollow. In other words, you can make a full-size candlestick using less brass and that's a cost savings that you pass on to the customer. The candlestick doesn't, re doesn't require <laughs> a, a great deal of strength. In the case of the gun barrel, though, uh, it will require a great deal of strength. You have to make sure that the casting is flawless so that it doesn't fail in use. And that's why these are cast solid and then bored out. And this is a change that takes place about this time in, in, in the mid-18th century again. Up to that point, they had cast the cannon using a core so that, that when it was molded, there actually was a hole in the middle of it when it was pulled out of the mold. Um, and in doing so, the reason they did that was not to save brass, but because they didn't have a really effective means of boring that deep hole into the bronze. And by the time we're talking about in the 1770s, the practice had shifted to a whole new technology where 
instead of lowering the, the gun barrel onto a turning drill bit, everything was mounted horizontally and actually they turned the cannon barrel and fed it into a stationary bit. And it's hard to conceptualize theoretically, but that results in there being a straight concentric hole through the cannon, whereas otherwise you weren't assured of that. By being able to cast them solid, you were much more likely to get a good solid mm -hmm. casting without any porosity or honeycombing or whatever in it. Okay, you now have this solid 41-inch barrel, but it's not a cannon because there's nothing for the three-pound shell to come out of. How do you make certain that the bore is straight? Exactly, and that was one of those big problems with rotating the drill bit into a stationary barrel. But when you're rotating the barrel into the bit, the whole physics of that tends to center the bit in the core, or in, in the, the casting. Mm -hmm. So you end up with a hole that's concentric with the axis of the casting. It may vary a little bit in diameter because that's where the compensation takes place. But you've got that essentially straight hole through the middle of the gun. And then once that's there, you can go in with other bits and make sure that it's all in an even diameter all the way through and that it's polished. Mm -hmm. Do you know how to do that, the way they did it? We have a um, decent intellectual understanding of it. <laughs> um, but it requires incredible equipment to do it. I mean, it's, it's tons of equipment mounted on stone because you have to eliminate vibration and so forth. The process is not really too much different from the way a typical machine shop today with modern equipment does any sort of deep hole drilling. And this is the one aspect of this project that we're going to do in a modern way. Mm -hmm. Once we get the casting, we're going to put it on a lathe in, in our machine shop here and actually drill it using the same theoretical technology as the 18th century, but modern equipment. Okay. Now, uh, I asked you how long it was. I did not ask you how long the bore is. How, uh, you've got a 41-inch cannon. How much of that is actually cannon, if you will? I think it's about three feet. When we cast one of those also, um, the, uh, the breech end of the gun uh, is made up as a separate mold. So the length of the barrel is created as a, a mold that's hollow all the way through. Mm -hmm. And then there's a solid uh, pattern for the caskable, the breech end. That has to be set in the casting pit first, and then the hollow mold is lowered down on top of that, and it has to be a good fit, it has to be level and square. Um, so it'll be bored out you know, to close to the, uh, where the caskable joins it, and a touch hole would be uh, drilled from there also. I have read part of the material, and I say this is a, a three-pounder. All right. What does three pounds refer to? Three pounds refers to the weight of the ball that it shoots. Okay, that was and, our guess. Right, and but, that, that's the way 18th century artillery is generally classified, is by the weight of the projectile, solid shot. Okay, to, so to give us an idea, uh, was there anything smaller than a three pounder? There were one pounders, mm -hmm. uh, but three pounders basically about as light as field artillery pieces get. Uh, and, and the reason for a, a piece that small compared to 12 or 24 or 48-pounders was its mobility, the ability mm -hmm. to be able to get it around in a tactical situation. Was it carried around by men or horses or mules or whoever you could get to pull the thing? This particular uh, cannon is made so that it can be moved either way. 
it's uh, set up so it can be drawn by horses when you're going a great distance, but the reference to it being a light three-pounder is the fact that it can be fitted with handles and the whole thing lifted by soldiers and maneuvered by carrying it on their shoulders. I bet they would have picked horses. I think that would be the preference. Actually, it sort of represents a new approach to the use of artillery that was being developed in the mid-18th century. Up to that point, cannons were big and heavy and awkward, and what you tended to do is you put them in position, and that was almost a static position, at least you know, for the time being. And the development of these really light guns meant that you could maneuver them out in front of the infantry, you could, you could maneuver them with the infantry themselves, and they were designed to be infantry support weapons and, and had that tactical mobility and flexibility that that kind of task demanded. Did both sides have three-pounders? We had three-pounders after Saratoga <laughs> because the first 20 of the type of barrel pattern that, that we're going to cast uh, were supplied to General Burgoyne for his march out of Washington. And with the surrender at Saratoga, I believe we acquired 20 of them. Well, that's as good a way as anything. Yeah. And they ended up exchanging hands. I mean, there's all kinds of tales, if you read the, the literature that's been put together on it, where, you know, one side would have them in a particular battle. They unfortunately or fortunately lost. The other side acquired them. They used them for a while, then they were lost again. So they traded hands off and on all throughout the whole, whole war. What made you decide to build one? It actually was a fairly unusual weapon. Three-pounders had been in place before this time, but they were much larger, bigger guns. Mm -hmm. And the ones that we're reproducing were actually developed for use in North America. And almost all of them were produced in 1775, 1776, and almost all of them came over here. And their production really stopped after that. So it is kind of an, an anomaly uh, in the, the whole family of cannon. How long is it? How much does it weigh? The barrel is about 41 or 42 inches long, mm -hmm. so, you know, not, not terribly long. Um, and the barrel weighs a little bit over 200 pounds, so it's, it's, it's very manageable by a couple of guys. Uh, the wheel diameter is about three feet, I think, maybe a little bit more than that. So it is a thoroughly manageable gun. You aim the whole, the whole thing, the whole carriage, but yeah, one guy can pick up the back end of it and roughly point it where it needs to go. You stuff powder into the barrel, mm -hmm. then you load your shot. Is there anything else that needs doing, or is that it? Well then, uh, so when, when you load that way, you have the, the powder, and that's usually wrapped in uh, often a cloth package, and then the projectile is seated securely on top of that. The touch hole, or the vent that I referred to, will be filled with gunpowder. So you reach down in the vent with a, a little iron pin, pierce the, uh, the wrapping of the powder, and then fill the vent with loose gunpowder. And uh, there's a, usually a little uh, flat area on top of the vent that you fill with powder. When that's touched off with a, a burning slow match, the gunpowder burns down through the vent, and when it reaches the powder charge, uh, that's when the explosion occurs. Uh, and the projectile leaves the cannon instead of the cannon leaving the projectile there. Right, although the cannon does mm -hmm. kick. Even this little mm -hmm. cannon with a relatively you know, light ball will, will recoil significantly. You don't want to be right behind it when it goes off. Well, um, I, would, I would presume the artillery men would have learned that probably the hard way. That's what the whole drill right. is all about, is how to keep those guys not only efficient and slick in their operations, but safe. 
What's also unusual about the gun itself is it was really meant to be a self-contained unit. Once you had the, the gun and all of its fittings and the limber, you had, that included ammunition ready to go because it was meant to be deployed quickly and into action quickly. So in some cases it was the components Ken just talked about were actually assembled, where you had the iron shot or the case, which is like a big shotgun shell, sitting on a wooden base, and then this powder bag is tied to that. So literally it was a one-piece bit of ammunition, which speeded up fire tremendously. But one of the neat things about the gun, and in addition to all the things that Ken talked about and its manageable size, manageable project, is we have a huge amount of information about it per se. And so we know the type of ammunition that was packed with it, where it was packed, uh, how much it weighed. It was supplied with block and tackle to move it around. It was supplied with man harness to drag it around. Uh, it was supplied with an oversized musket for sort of an added defensive capability. We know how all of it was stowed on the gun. We know the drill that was used to load and fire the thing. We've got this huge amount of information, mm -hmm. probably much more so than just about any, anything else I can think of mm -hmm. that is that complex in terms of all the components of the, of the overall piece. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Follow the progress of the Cannon's construction on the blog at history.org cannon. Listen to next week's program for a continuation of our discussion with Jay Gaynor and Ken Schwartz. Check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.